Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. I have a special episode for you today. I was in New York for the UN General Assembly, and so was Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, Sarah Sewell. And we taped the episode you are about to hear in front of a live audience at a packed house that was organized by the New York chapter of the group Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, otherwise known as YPFP. They had asked me a while ago to do a live taping of the podcast for their members and schedules aligned to make what you are about to hear happen. Sarah Sewell kicks off telling some behind-the-scenes stories from her week at the UN and describing what it's like being a top U.S. diplomat during the busiest week on the diplomatic calendar. We then discuss some of the substantive issues she is working on relating to countering violent extremism and terrorism through diplomacy and development, and she discusses her groundbreaking career that led her from her home in Maine to the highest reaches of foreign policy making. And at the end, we take some questions from the audience. I must say, this was a lot of fun, and I would be happy to do this again if the opportunity arises. A big shout out to the team at YPFP, including Aaron Levy, Simon Van Worden, and Juan Machado, and also Sarah Sewell's team at the State Department for making this happen. And just one more thing before we begin, this is still the month of September, so this is still our fundraising drive. If you appreciate this podcast, if you realize that there is no podcast out there that covers these issues in the way that I do, then I need your support. Please make a monthly recurring contribution to the podcast. You can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and follow the links to make the contribution. You can also, if you're listening to this in iTunes, click the link in the description page of this episode. And listen, if this podcast is part of your routine, if it's part of your daily life, if you look forward to new episodes, if you just appreciate me covering some of these sometimes undercovered global stories. And if you appreciate learning the life stories of the foreign policymakers you admire, then please do consider making a, don't just consider, make a monthly recurring contribution. I need this. We need this to keep, to keep on going. Okay, now let's go to the SLC Conference Center in Midtown Manhattan, where this conversation was taped. And if you're in the crowd, let me just say thank you. You are a fantastic audience. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, and thank you, especially, I should say, to YPFB, particularly to Aaron 
and to Simon. And I'd also give a special uh, thank you to Ben Hormer of the uh, Humanitarian Tech Meetup. This is the first time that we are doing a live taping of the podcast. I'm just so, so excited, so thankful uh, that you all are here, so thankful that the Undersecretary is here, uh, and thankful to her team for making this happen. And this all happened at the last minute, and, and it's, it's serendipitous, and, and we are here. Uh, and now I'd like to introduce Undersecretary of State Sarah Sewell. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Undersecretary of State Sarah Sewell, for being here. It's great to be here. Um, so I am, am thankful that you're here because this is, as you know, you know, obviously one of the busiest, most important weeks for international diplomacy. You know, the um, the, the spokesperson for the Secretary General of the UN calls what Ban Ki Moon does this week diplomatic speed dating, uh, as an analogy of just how many meetings are packed into such a short period of time. Uh, I am just so just kind of personally curious to learn what is your week like. What what is your day to day like? Well, I think every day is a combination of meetings that you have read all of the preparation for the day before and are about to forget as you go into them because they are stacked one on top of the other. And I think anybody would tell you that when you are doing the speed dating, which is how we refer to it at the State Department also, you know, you are worried about a couple of things. You need to have someone who really knows the building with you because you need to know where the bathrooms are because there are very few opportunities in between meetings because there are so many. You have to think about when you're going to get food. I mean, there are many logistical issues that one has to... To, uh, and you have like an all access pass. I should say, those of us with press passes, we have a bathroom we can use, and there's like 3,000 people trying to use it. That's totally fair. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the, the opportunity that you have at the UN with people from so many parts of the world who work on so many different issues, the opportunity that you have to get work done, to move things forward in a condensed, efficient way is unparalleled. So we all roll our eyes about how difficult it is moving through security and how how exhausted we are walking. And for those of us that don't do so well in heels, how many miles really hurt in heels. <laughs> but the reality is that you have access to people in both formal ways that are scheduled and then in very informal, personal interaction ways that are unexpected that allow you to really advance the issues that you're working on. So it's it's really an honor to be able to, to be in the UN setting as a representative of the US government working on your issues but being able to touch so many people and so many issues in such a condensed way. So is there any sort of unexpected meeting that happened today that was particularly resonant? Well, I think there are always unexpected meetings in the sense that um, that when you are when you are having informal conversations on the side and in between, people share information that they might not share in a formal setting because it would have to be cleared through a building or because it would be scripted in some formal way. So I think they're always small surprises. We also had a rather large surprise because we were going up the escalator and someone, I assume because the elevators had been blocked off, decided that it was a really good idea to put a, a, a huge... Uh, cart with about 60 pizzas on <laughs> on the escalator going up and we were behind it and 
their card flipped and the pizzas went flying and the man fell on the person in front of me who fell on me and we had we uh, you know uh, so there are there are all was John Kerry on the bottom of the pile no fortunately it was just my loyal team so oh, okay. it, it, sorry guys but um but so so the UN the most important thing to remember about UN week though is that people are people and diplomats are people and so you are it's all about the communication with people and when you have this sort of very social intense atmosphere, you do have a chance to accomplish work that you might not be able to do in the course of a formal trip or a phone call or whatever. And so I think for people like the president and the secretary who are constantly moving a huge wide ranging agenda, it's really an unparalleled opportunity to get your work done. And I think the thematic focus for this year's UN General Assembly for the United States was a really important one given world events. You know, we were focused on the, the refugee and migration crisis. We were focused, as always, on peace and security and the role of the UN therein. And we're focused on augmenting a very kinetic, military-focused CT approach with a much broader, more comprehensive mm -hmm. approach to counter violent extremism and prevent the next generation. And I, I definitely want to ask you about that, but I have one more scene-setting question sure. for you. Um, so we're speaking, I think, just a few hours after the president left New York. How does your job, how is your job different when he is in the same town, when he's in New York and you're in New York, uh, versus when he left? I mean, is everything just a little more intense? When he is here, there's a lot more uncertainty in the schedule because what happens is a process of cascading. So if he is pulling people into meetings that are unscheduled, other people are moving and you are getting texts saying you now need to go to this meeting and cover this or deliver these remarks. So there's, there's much more fluidity to all of the schedules of American diplomats when the president mm -hmm. is in town because of the pull factor from the very top. And I suppose not even American diplomats because he was late to his UNGA address uh, and uh, was skipped ahead in line by the president of Chad, Idris Deby, who had a packed house for his, for his remarks. There are all kinds of unexpected complications in every UNGA, and everyone has their UNGA war stories. But the biggest single difference is just the security and the ease of moving around. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would love to dive into some of these substantive issues that you are talking about, particularly counterterrorism. I know that, that your department is up to some interesting things, that you're up to some interesting things that perhaps are a little below the radar in the countering violent extremism realm. And I, I just love to learn a little from you what your meetings are like this week uh, in terms of, of advancing that agenda and just what things that the State Department is up to that we might not be aware of. Sure. Um, happy to talk about that. It was February in 2015 when President Obama really changed the international conversation about violent extremism. Um, up until that point in time, we had basically been talking about counterterrorism and the whole emphasis post 9-11 uh, uh, it's now the 15-year anniversary, and we've seen that the threat has really changed from the original threat with al-Qaeda. But you know, essentially the remnants that were dispersed um, moved to new arenas and found new identities and new partners and reformed themselves. And so we now have a threat that is in many ways much more uh, geographically dispersed and, and now in the form of, of ISIL has seized territory and is really at the source of the, 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 the refugee and migration crisis. So the threat has not gone away in many respects and by many measures it's gotten worse. And so the question is, what is it that we could do differently given how, how assiduously and decisively we've massed military force 
and intelligence and security solutions to the original problem. So, so what are you doing? So what we're doing is we are asking a couple of questions of heads of state that really came out of uh, President Obama's conference. One is, to what extent is the do governments bear a responsibility for the kind of responses that are manifest in violent extremism? How do behaviors of security forces affect communities? How do uh, the abridgment of human rights or the marginalization of communities create a fertile recruitment ground for these international uh, movements that are committed to violence and the creation uh, or the fulfillment of different ideologies. That's one thing. Can, just, can I ask you uh, just to probe a little bit deeper on that? Sure. Um, it seems almost intuitive that there would be a connection between the abridgment of human rights and the rise of extremism, that you marginalize people, you abuse people, they might want to react in some way against the government that's abusing them. Uh, it seems intuitive, but is there actual evidence to support that, that thesis? Well, there's, there's evidence in two different forms. One, there's evidence in the form of any interviews that are done with people who are arrested for being rehabilitated in prison, otherwise involved in violent extremist movements. You often find personal narratives that speak to varieties of these particular feelings. Mm -hmm. But more specifically, if you do generic pro polling, what you'll find is that there's a very high correlation between people who have had individual experiences of physical violation at the hands of what they perceive to be rightly or wrongly state security apparatus, or individual experiences with corrupt officials or individual experiences with the state's perceived misbehavior mm -hmm. that correlates with distrust and sympathy toward violent extremism. Is, so is there an is individual data. story that you can relate that might, um, that might you know, illustrate this example? Well, I mean... I don't spend most of my time talking to the perpetrators of violence. Most of our emphasis with the countering violent extremism agenda is on preventing radicalization to violence among those who are most at risk. So this is the second element of the, of the approach to countering violent extremism that's really fundamentally different from a pure CT counterterrorism approach. And that is building community resilience. So governments alone, they, their behavior may affect, it will never excuse violence, but it may affect the ability of terrorists to, um, to recruit and to mobilize to violence. But communities are best positioned to be the ones detecting early signs of radicalization, and they're the ones that are most trusted interlocutors for those who are veering toward a path of radicalization. So communities have to be equipped and supported in both identifying radicalization early, but also in having the resources and the, the, the venues for finding alternative pathways for these folks. And that can take a variety of forms that are going to depend on the nature of the problem in a given community. But things like mentorship programs, things like alternative vocational education, things, anything that has to do with the community itself redirecting those impulses on an individual level is something that is going to be best carried out by a community. Governments can help, government services can help, but the focus on resilient communities is something that's new and different and that is connected with governance because if you don't have room for communities to organize, to talk about what's on their minds, what their grievances are, if there's no room for the press to be reporting freely on what the issues at stake are, if people aren't um, able to 
to petition their governments and to engage in free speech and freedom of assembly. That's the governance interaction with the community empowerment. So these are the two new elements that are really most critical of the global conversation that's now been picked up by the UN Secretary General in the UN can, Prevention Plan of Action. Can you give an example of a country or a community, probably more accurately, that's doing this right, that's doing this well, that has embraced these ideas and is executing it? Sure. So. Um, one of the more interesting things that happened to me when I traveled to East Africa about a little more than a year and a half ago was um, going to the Swahili-speaking coast, which had been very much on the government's radar as a source of the problem of radicalization. So we went and we talked to um, both members of the political leadership, the security forces, and the communities. We found an interesting confluence of um, changes going on in each of those elements. First of all, the political devolution of authority in Kenya, which is uh, the part of the Swahili-speaking coast around Mombasa that we were in, had empowered new elections for local governance that was perceived to be legitimate by a majority of the people, whereas it had been formally basically appointed by the national government. So political change and opening. Um, security forces had begun to question whether or not undertaking these massive sweeps that they had been taking when there was a problem in a community, they would go and sort of just arrest everybody. And then they would go to prison and they would all not surprisingly um, share their experience of how angry they were that they were all in prison when they might not have been doing anything to justify being apprehended and may have lacked for uh, legal representation to get themselves out. And at the same time, the communities themselves, there had been a series of uh, attacks on mosques, the communities themselves uh, in the, the, um, the Muslim communities had organized themselves to promote community dialogue and to begin to provide youth mentoring programs to youth. That community dialogue with those youth as part of it began to engage in the conversation with the security forces that had begun to rethink their sweep policies. Now, it was interesting because the security forces were busy taking credit for having opened up this dialogue with the community, and the community very pointedly said to us, yeah, well, they called us once and then they forgot to call us, but we kept calling them and we kept calling them, and so we have continued the dialogue. That's an example of the different ways, the strands of a more comprehensive approach to trying to prevent radicalization to violence can come together to have an impact on a community. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, prison, uh, because prison does seem to be a place uh, where people get radicalized. Uh, and that's, I think, you know, in, it can happen anywhere. I mean, I, I, in a future episode of the podcast that I've recorded but haven't published yet, I speak to the author Scott Shane of a new book about Anwar al-Waki, the uh, American of Yemeni descent, uh, who was, was killed in a drone strike a few years ago. But uh, he suspects that he was radicalized in a jail in the United Kingdom. Uh, and we know that these, this is where a lot of radicalization happens. Is there anything that the U.S. government is doing that you're doing to you know, you know, enact things like prison reform? And, sure. and how do those conversations even, even happen? How do you as a government official go to you know, someone in, in Niger and, and say, you know, your, your prisons are, are not operating appropriately? Well, I mean, that, that's a huge part of the work that I do. I mean, I was recently having a conversation in Indonesia on exactly that topic. It was not an issue of which the government was unaware, but it was an issue that the government was ill-equipped to deal with. And so it, it doesn't take much for people to understand the dangers of having radicals mixed in with common criminals, particularly young criminals who may be in pretrial detention for very long periods of time in miserable conditions. It's Even if they're not aware of the problem, it's pretty easy to make them aware of the problem. And then the question is, what can you do about it? We have a bunch of different 
kinds of interventions that, um, that help address this issue. One is literally trying to segregate, help, help countries better segregate and categorize the kinds of individuals that come into prisons mm-hmm. and often to physically isolate those who are perceived to be, have been radicalized to violence from the rest. Another is to work on representation and removal of those, particularly the young, who are or and petty criminals, so that they are not in that environment at all. We do a lot of work on um, rehabilitation support for countries that are seeking to reintegrate the, those who have been radicalized and served their sentences back into communities. And they are often the most powerful voices to speak on the prevention agenda because having gone through the rehabilitation process, they have a perspective and a credibility to speak to youth that are early in the beginning of that process um, that, again, governments simply don't have. Uh, So last question uh, along these lines. Uh, What is your one big takeaway from your week here in in New York? Is there one big, big accomplishment or big moment that you will remember as being the most meaningful, most impactful from your time uh, here in New York? Well, I think um, what I'm interested in as someone who looks to the United Nations as um, an international forum that can, that can be harnessed for the good is how significant the UN Secretary General's Prevention Plan of Action, which seeks to mobilize the entire UN system in support of this more preventive, proactive, positive approach to, to preventing violent extremism, is how important the refugee uh, summit accomplishments from this session uh, in terms of increasing the amount of funding that's available and increasing the amount of routes for resettlement that are available and increasing the, the avenues for employment for those who are in third countries or the education for kids who are in third countries are available. But how, in spite of the significant changes that, that the UN is able to set in motion, the bottom line is that states need to step up and do that work and fulfill those promises. The UN is, is the vehicle for states to act or not to act, and the proof is always in the pudding of the state action. And the final point that I would make is that it's very interesting to see the way in which civil society is beginning to find a form alongside of states in the UN conversation, and increasingly there are both places for civil society at the table and there are international networks for civil society that begin to be pulled into these what have previously been monopoly of state conversations. And on CVE, whether it's a youth network or a research network involving very local actors out in the hinterlands, or whether it's a women's network, or whether it's a cities network, these are all pieces of the scaffolding of solution sets to these multifaceted problems that are joining with states in becoming part of the solution. And and that's really exciting to see take shape as well. And I, I just say CVE is, is UN and I suppose State Department jargon for countering violent extremism. But the UN lingo is PVE, which is preventing, preventing violent, violent extremism. extremism. But it's essentially the same thing. Uh, I would love to switch gears a little bit. We are speaking uh, in front of a crowd of uh, young professionals in foreign policy. You know, 10 years ago, when I was a, a member of this group, and I could m- probably more credibly be considered a, a young professional in foreign policy, uh, a few years before that, I suppose you uh, could as well. Um, so I, I would love to learn a little bit more about, about you and how you got into this line of work. Where are you from? Well, I'm from the great state of Maine. Okay. What part of Maine? The southern coastal area. Okay. It's a good, good spot. Now, uh, what did your parents do? 
Uh, my father was a lawyer, and then he ran a lobster pound. Okay. And my mother became divorced before it was fashionable and had to create a career and moved into nonprofit development work. Uh, now, growing up, was conversations of foreign policy, of world affairs, part of your upbringing? No. No? No. I think, you know, for me, what really launched my career, and, and I'm not sure if this is a good or a bad thing, so I'm not sure that I would recommend this <laughs> to those of you who are listening, but... Um, it was really fear, you know. In the in the hierarchy of things that one thinks about, uh, in terms of what your future could hold and what problems you ought to work on, what contributions you want to make, I am old enough that the Cold War was still uh, very much the the very rigid frame, and the threat of nuclear annihilation was felt very real. We had just had, you know, in my early days on Capitol Hill, the whole, you know, issues about new nuclear weapons development, the deployment of intermediate range missiles in Europe, and it was all very live. And I remember reading a book about uh, essentially the end of the world with nuclear annihilation by some think tank. I was <laughs> crying. I was thinking, this is what I have to work on. Because if I don't work on this, all this other stuff that I care about, whether it's, you know, dogs or women's rights or whatever it is, doesn't matter. You're so, crying while thinking, while reading a uh, think well, tank report. I was reading report. this book. No, I looked up and I could envision uh, a mushroom cloud coming up over the ocean, over the horizon, in a place that means a lot to me. And, and it just felt very real. And so I tried to pick an a priori issue that I thought was an antecedent for all the other good work that I knew had to happen in the world. Now, Did that realization happen in college, in high school? That was in college. And I went on, you know, I went on to work on um, anti-satellite weapons before Reagan. So I was during college, too. But so I was interested in I was interested in things military and in things arms controlly and in things sort of nuclear, because the whole anti-satellite weapons were a threat to strategic stability uh, because of the possibility of. of where did you where do you go to college? Morning. Where do you go to school? I went to Harvard. I've heard of that. So, so anyway, I, you know, it was it was trying to sort of figure out well, what's the highest and best use? You know, where, where do you go and make a big difference? Now, I think there are so many other ways that people can fruitfully direct themselves, but now we have so many competing, really existential challenges on the planet. We have climate change, we have violent extremism, we have what what President Obama was just setting up as the the struggle between sort of the. The, the, the new authoritarianism and, and, and sort of neo-fascism and then the defense of the liberal international order. I mean... I have a new one for you, actually. There's a, a subject at the UN this week, antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, Which is a, a big meeting at the absolutely. UN. It was uh, at the UN General Assembly this morning, actually. Uh, and I read this World Bank report and probably started to cry while I was reading the World Bank report, saying that some 10 million people, if, if present trends continue, 10 million people uh, will die each year from uh, easily preventable causes uh, that could otherwise have been prevented if uh, uh, antibiotics uh, were used. And that's roughly the same number of people who die right now of cancer. Uh, but not only that, it gets worse. Uh, the, the, the financial devastation equivalent of the 2008 financial collapse will, will befall our, our common humanity if uh, current trends in antimicrobial so you're resistance. You're going to med school, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I know. It's too late. It's too late. I'm too late. I can only fret about it, I think. Um, so, but but um, you're having these thoughts. You're, you, how did you first decide to channel... Uh, these these things the, these ideas that you were having. Uh, did you want to go into academia? Was that a, a place? No, she I, frowned. By the way, you, you can't say. And good for you. I I, up I, there, I'm though. sort of anti-academia. I, I think. But go ahead. Yeah. So um, 
I actually took a year off from college my sophomore year. I was interning, and I didn't want to leave, and I was sitting on the end of the bed, and the mom of the friend with whom I was staying said, you don't have to go back if you don't want to go back. I was like, I don't. I called my parents, and they weren't together, so I played them off against one another. And basically, I didn't go back to college that year, and... And I stayed in Washington, and I got the bug. And okay. so that was Where were you working? transformative for me. Well, I, I spent the summer at the Institute for Policy Studies, which, okay. which uh, is of one very ori- uh, particular political orientation. And then I On went, the left side of the spectrum. And I said. interned in the office of Olympia Snow, okay. who was a moderate Republican. Yes, back when they existed. And yes. then I went to the Center for Defense Information, which okay. is where I started working anti-satellite weapons, in part because I had read a Bill Broad article. Here's another way to get inspired on your career. I had well read a, uh, an article by William Broad, who is still writing for the New York Times, if I'm not mistaken. I read this article about strategic decapitation. I was like, that is a really bad idea. So that I wrote my application to be an intern because I said, this is, I want to stop this. This is a bad idea. Um, so so I took a year off and, and essentially validated that this was the career path that I wanted to be on. The policy world. So how did, what were your first steps to, to, to execute against that? What, what, what was your next move? Well, I went to graduate school right after college, in part because I got a scholarship. And when I came back, I was looking for work in Washington, and I was working in the basement of the Federation of American Scientists. And my job was doing data entry, perigee and apogee in, you know, data on satellites so that they could figure out something about what the satellites were doing because, of course, it was all classified information, but you could deduce it. So I started out, I came back and I started looking for work, and I ended up working for George Mitchell after quite uh, after a series of, of events led me to George Mitchell's office. Uh, another great man, and who has been on this podcast. It, he was uh, the best... He was a terrific boss. He was a really terrific boss. You know, it's funny. In, in our converse, my conversation with him, he credits Ed Muskie, another Mainer, yep. for uh, yep. for promoting his yep. career. So it's Ed Muskie yep. to George Mitchell to, to Sarah Sewell. Yeah, well, I don't have the patience <laughs> of George Mitchell. He really is extraordinary in his statesmanship, and there's a new book out about him um, that details that. But um, that was a fantastic experience. So uh, in grad school, where did you go to grad school? Oxford. Okay, you Rhodes Scholarship? Yeah. How I have to ask you a little bit about that. Um, what how, what was your application like? Like how, how does it? It that, was last the, minute. And it was full of typos and whiteout. And it worked. Where were you when you realized like, that when when you got the word that I you don't know. you don't know? Uh, what what did you study? What was your PhD? I did an MPhil initially in okay. international relations, and I had the interesting experience. And again, it's so it's okay. So I, first of all, there are a lot of women here today. I hope there are a lot of women listening yes. on the podcast. Um, I was in a different era. I mean, uh, I was in a different era. I wanted to go, I went to Oxford and I wanted to study military history with Michael Howard, famous military historian, and I'd read all this stuff, and he didn't work with women. So Did I, he just like flat out say that to you? No, the people who didn't let me talk to him just flat out. <laughs> they said, oh my yeah, God. Yeah. So it was a different era. It was a really different era. Um, but I didn't really want to be in grad school anyway. I wanted to okay. be I got that impression. Working. Uh, so, so you got your job with with George Mitchell. Eventually. Eventually, yeah. what are we doing for like foreign policy yeah. advising? What year was this? Really bad dates. Uh, Eighty seven. Eighty seven. And he became majority leader. What in like the mid nineties? Shortly after I started. Shortly after yep. was that was that uh, all of a sudden you're in leadership, you're in power. Was that different from you kind of trickling down the, the, so the chain? So very different. And yeah. I was glad that I'd had the experience 
of working for him before he became majority leader. Okay. Was he more humble back then? I knew what it, well, and I had also been, I mean, this is again for everybody who's just slogged through life trying to make phone calls and get people to return your phone call. I mean, there were so many people I met once he was majority leader who had never returned my phone call. And, And so I try to always remember how frustrating it is to have people not, return your phone calls. I mean, it was just, it was, it was good to have not started there. It was good. And, and so, I mean, what were the big issues? Uh, do you remember the oh first God. kind of big Persian issue Gulf that we're Persian Gulf reflagging issues. We did the first. Wait, well, what's the reflagging issue in the Persian uh, you Gulf? You don't really want to go into it, but it, it, it had to do with, um, it had to do, it had to do with diplomacy vis-a-vis the Iran-Iraq war. And let me just leave it at that because it's, okay. it's not actually that interesting. But we did. I, one of my first acts was to do the resolution condemning Iraq's use of chemical weapons uh, against its own citizens in the context of the war. And uh, what kind of support did you get for that resolution? Was it unanimous, or was was there politicking to I do? Had, I had done the magical thing. I had found an issue on which everybody could agree. But it was also a very different time on Capitol Hill. One of the most things I'm most proud of working on was the comprehensive test ban, um, which we we worked on the moratorium. That we sort of set this whole process in motion. But it was a bipartisan process with Jim Exxon and uh, Mark Hatfield and George Mitchell. And, you know, we, the staff had all been, we all knew, the staff had been talking about, you know, what could you do on arms control? And everybody said you couldn't have a comprehensive test ban. Uh, You know, you'd never find bipartisan support for a halt, permanent halt to nuclear testing. So we started with a one-year moratorium. And, you know, when that ultimately passed, it was as if we had um, broken through the, the sort of the set of assumptions that had imprisoned a lot of uh, the the mechanics on that issue in on Capitol Hill. What do you can you explain that a little bit? Sure. I mean, the people people. You know, I have this quote on a bunch of different um, places that I live and work, and it's it's essentially it's the William James quote about how everybody makes fun of you until suddenly it's obvious that that's the thing that you do. And and I feel like I have always been drawn to working on issues that everybody said were sort of impossible to tackle or couldn't be tackled for this reason or that reason. And, um, you know, nine times out of ten, they may be right in my experience, but but there is value to pushing through those barriers because there will be times when you will get through. And in some ways, I think of the countering violent extremism and the expanding the framework through which we view the problem of violent extremism globally as another example of that, something that was very difficult to do. But then once it's done, now it's in the UN Secretary General's plan of action. Have you ever sat back and reflected on why you might be drawn to trying to solve seemingly intractable problems? I, Is, <laughs> let me not go there. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Fair enough. Um, but we know that's part of your part of your your work in, in life history. Um, so uh, you were with Senator Mitchell for for how many years? Six. Six years. And uh, during the Clinton administration, uh, did you join the Clinton administration? I did. How, how, so I did. I I at the time. I was guessing, actually. By the way. Well, <laughs> I figured I okay it's good. It's true. Good. It's true. Um, I went into the Clinton administration as the first deputy assistant secretary of defense for peacekeeping operations. Oh, and um, I used to joke with Susan Rice, who was working at the NSC on peacekeeping operations at the time, that because the men hadn't sort of cornered the market on peacekeeping because it was brand new, mm-hmm. essentially in this post Cold World 
post-Cold War New World Order optimism uh, about the role of international institutions and the role of international security institutions in particular, um, this was perceived as essentially a new field that hadn't yet been completely sort of staked out. And so there were a lot of women working That's so interesting on that, that, uh I mean, I know just having you know been around the UN and studied the UN, uh, that it is true, that, that it, it's, it's, a, it's a female, not dominated, you have the experts that I turn to, people like Tori Holt, or um, Samantha Power to to a, a certain extent, and, and um, the the academics I read on on peacekeeping, maybe with the exception of William Dirch, Bill Dirch, he's the only only man well, he I was can doing think it before of. Before it became cool. Uh, okay, good, good. <laughs> are are uh, are women, and I had never um, thought that it was that gender there dynamic. Was there it was, was space. because there was space. And, and Samantha came to it. I mean, Samantha's almost of a different generation yeah. than I am. But this was in the this was mm-hmm. in the early 1990s, and so you know it was Tori, it was Susan Rice, it mm-hmm. was women. There, there was space. So how did you create that space? I mean, you you got this job. Uh, how did you how did you go about go about making that space and 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 entering it and and you know working in what? what well, when I, 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 I should I say I have to imagine the Pentagon obviously is still like a male dominated place. Yeah. When I started, I w- there was one guy who had been working on letters of assist in the Defense Department, um, which are the, the legal vehicles through which we provide uh, material support and service support to UN peacekeeping operations. And I asked him um, you know, to review sort of the history of what we'd been doing. And he was the only person working on peacekeeping in the Pentagon formally. And he opened his drawer, and this massive receipt sort of spilled out onto the floor. And I thought whoa. I mean, we were starting at ground zero. My first office was down a corridor in the mail sorting department and it was right next to the men's room at the very end and I had a computer and I would get these little yellow stickies on my computer that would say things like the general called. You know, I mean, it was, it was, they were early days. There was, there was no, there was no roadmap. And so uh, a lot of it was just building, it was building a conceptual framework. It was building, hiring a team of people. It was um, explaining and managing these issues to people who were not uh, necessarily predisposed to think of them as hard security issues that belonged in the Pentagon. And there was a whole inter- interagency dynamic at the time, too, because we were working on peacekeeping policy, which you know, was busy being lapped by the, the, the operational demands of actual peacekeeping day-to-day policy, which was focused on Somalia and Bosnia and Rwanda, mm-hmm. or not. And so it was a very busy, very intense time where a lot of precedents were being set and a lot of uh, expectations were being both formed and dashed simultaneously. So it was a very intense experience. As an individual who had uh, just come from uh, Capitol Hill, how did you find that your ability to affect change, like actual change in foreign policy, is different from your perch on Capitol Hill versus uh, you know, the, the, the middle of the Pentagon or the bowels well, of the I Pentagon. Well, I think in any imagine. executive agency, it's, it's a much more diffuse process. I mean, the advantage of Capitol Hill is that you can actually pass legislation. And legislation uh, has sort of a form and a force, and it may even have funding with it. Um, and it gives you a tool to then look at how policy is effectuated uh, within the executive branch. But the executive branch is ultimately about implementation. And there are so many cooks in the kitchen on it that it is it is a very there is a lot of friction in that process and it's a friction that's very different from that which might attend the negotiations that lead you up to legislation but at the end you've got legislation so they're extremely different processes so did you spend the entirety of the clinton administration in the pentagon 
No, 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 no. I became pregnant with triplets. Ah. The pregnant part was planned. The triplet part was not. And I ended up leaving in 1996 to go to Boston where I had to sort of start all over. It's funny. I have two children, um, and I work from home, and the logistics of that are crazy. I, I just triplets. I just cannot even imagine, let alone being like well, a high-powered government official. I went from being the deputy assistant official. secretary of defense for peacekeeping and peace enforcement policy to being the mother of triplets, and that was a big change. <laughs> big um, so, how did you spend the, the the Bush years before we uh, we turn over to the audience? Um, well, I, I began, uh, there were a couple of things that I, I worked at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I started a research program at Harvard, and I eventually became... Uh, the Carr Center, right? I eventually yeah. became the director of the Carr Center and uh, a professor at Harvard. And I am blessed to have a couple of my former students on my team now at the State uh, Department. Go Kennedy School. We're, 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 looking, in, we're looking in your direction. Um, so I'd love to take questions from the audience. I mean, I could keep going for hours, uh, but we have uh, just 20 minutes, uh, no, uh, 18 minutes uh, with the Undersecretary. So would anyone like to take a question, would anyone like to ask a question from the audience? Uh, yes, and we are going to pass the mic to you. Actually, it would be better if you walked to the, to the center. Yeah. Or Simon can maybe bring it Yeah, I think you know, the easiest, because the cable doesn't go away, okay, yeah. people just kind of line up yeah. asking questions, and then we can just take them. Yeah, yeah, why don't you line yeah, up? Sure. Great, thank you. I can just hold it. So my name's Erin, and I actually went to Bosnia this summer to do field work. And I was wondering, um, I worked with a lot of organizations that do youth engagement projects, but because Bosnia has their sort of like ethnically stratified power sharing agreement, how does the State Department um, target like these federal systems that are so divided by like ethnicity or religion when they, the government itself doesn't even work together? Maybe we'll take one more question if, if you can, yeah, John, yeah. Hi, I'm John Tominia. I work with the campaign to elect a woman UN Secretary General, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the current race and how important it is for the UN to elevate a woman to the UN's top job. Okay. Well, we'll hold there and maybe you can take the, the Bosnia question. Okay, sure. and the, the, yeah. Well, I can't speak for everywhere that the U.S. engages uh, within federal systems, but it is a challenge for in the state in the bilateral relationships that we have, or in the multilateral relationships that that, that stem from government to government communications. It can be very difficult, both at the level of policy making, where the implications for federal systems are significant, but also for programming. Uh, where we're trying to uh, maybe address an issue that requires an even-handed approach, even if the problems aren't experienced uh, by all communities or in all areas. It's a real challenge. We've got, um, we've got a number of examples where we have, uh, we have had to get out of our comfort level as a government to, to, to work uh, in many ways, it's easier to work through uh, non-governmental organizations when you're dealing with a highly federalized system because um, essentially the, the states are still learning how to work with non-central state actors. So the point that I made earlier about how this innovation in networks to try to give, to try to, in my, my the word I use is to thingify uh, the the, the non-governmental world or segments of the non-governmental world so that they appear as something that could be included in a summit or that could that would 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 
be part of a negotiation or that needs to be consulted as document X is being created. Um, it's, it's, it's an example similar to the federalization problem that we have dealing with sub-state actors or dealing with uh, the decentralization of political authority. In some cases, so for example, Nigeria is an interesting example where um, in some cases the problems are so localized to particular geographies within a state that you, you to, to address them effectively, you really want to be working with the, it, it, let's say, in this case, the, the governors. But that can create tensions with the central government, depending on the politics. And I was talking earlier about decentralization, federalization within Nigeria. So these are increasingly issues that, as states seek to address their own internal challenges through federalization, it creates an additional layer of complication on what's already become a very... Uh, variegated international relations landscape that's moved far beyond just the state-to-state -state process. Um, in terms of the UN Secretary General's race, you know, I'm up here as a representative of the U.S. government, and we don't we don't comment on how we think about the the particulars of the race. We very much welcome and expect that there will be female candidates in addition to male candidates. And our primary concern is It's a long list, um, but it includes things that you'd expect, like you know, a strong track record in diplomacy, as well as um, other factors like organizational management and a commitment to policy priorities that we share. Thank you. Next, yeah. Hi there. My name is Fabian Lützig. Um, I run a small coaching business, life and business coaching. Um, in my experience, foreign policy is a field that demands a lot of flexibility while at the same time having a lot of resolution and endurance. And so as a coach, um, it, I'm really curious, and it, from what you've shared with us, it's especially true in your case because in your career you've been pushing boundaries. Um, and so what I'm really curious about is when you're in the trenches having tough negotiations and you've had a grueling meeting, how do you... Where do you get the motivation and the energy from that you're still on the path to authentically represent what you believe in and that it's still going forward? Um, that is a really good and really tough question. I, I do rely very, very strongly on the, the, the bedfellows that I know and trust within my field. So in some cases it's my team, in other cases it's colleagues that I've worked with, um, it's of course my spouse. Um, but, but it's difficult, and especially when you feel beaten up bureaucratically and often by your own team, it can be really hard to sort of just, you know, puff yourself up again and go back at the ramparts. It's really hard. I think I am blessed because I uh, have the advantage as a political appointee that my job will end. Uh, so it's a curse and a blessing, but my job will end, and I will go and, and have a stint that is external to the bureaucracy. Um, but I think it's, it's probably uh, more important to ask that question of someone who is a foreign service officer or a civil servant who lives and breathes this as a long-term career because it, it can be challenging. The problems that our diplomats work on are incredibly important and incredibly challenging and very little of what we do as diplomats is fully within our control. It's again getting back to if the analog is you, can, you, you, can, you have a set number of players in a, in, a, in a 
parliamentary system to enact legislation, if that's one order of magnitude, then you think about working in a diffuse interagency process in a very large federal bureaucracy with a funding cycle that doesn't work and a huge amount of uncertainty as to sort of resources and direction. That's another level of magnitude. And you take that and you think about working with a country that may or may not have a federalized system, that may or may not be influenced more by its neighbors and by its own decisions, that may or may not be a victim of complete external uh, forces, whether it's climate change or war. I mean, it just, that's a whole other layer of magnitude. And so um, I want to make a plug for people to, to bring, I, I think you said the most important thing, which is if you go into foreign policy simply because you want to do the diplomacy, or you want to be somebody, or you think it sounds uh, like an intriguing way of life, I think you're going to end up being deflated. I think there has to be sort of a core motivation. And that's not to say it has to be the same motivation all the time. I talked about early on really feeling like there was a problem that I needed to work on because it would affect everything else. Um, that can change, and you can be motivated by a, a vision of something positive, and it, and it will change. through the. But if you don't have that sense, that sort of core emotional motivation, I don't know that you can get up well, and do it again and again and again. Can, can I ask quickly, at this stage in your career, is fear still a profound and powerful motivator? Well, I think, you know, I once, I once um, gave a talk about this at my, um, at my high school. I think fear for me... Is, is not a negative motivator. I think fear for me is a, is a prioritization tool. Um, and so I, I, I try to use it as a, as a, as a catalyst um, because often for me the problems are clearer than the solutions at the outset. Mm -hmm. And I feel my way towards solutions over time as I'm working on a problem. But it's, I find it, I, I just find from from my psychology, the, the, the fear sort of resonates first and then it, it motivates. Um, and then uh, the creativity and the, the need to be adaptive and flexible comes as you try to feel your way toward whatever solutions might be possible. Um, let's, let's take these last two questions. Yeah, we can take them in a row. Hi, um, I'm Sara Belligoni, and I'm a member of the board of director of YPFP Rome. Um, so my question is quite related with the previous one. I mean, like, I would like to ask you, uh, which is your feeling in uh, representing at the UN, the United States, and which are the main differences um, than maybe another representative that represents like an NGO or maybe a... a um, I mean, like um, UN agency, or and also, I would like to ask you um, how much uh, the the ideas or the expertise coming from the civil society and also the NGOs that address the UN General Assembly, uh, you know, how much the, their expertise is taken into account once you arrive to a resolution or maybe a solution or a program? Great, thank you. And we'll take one last question and then we can yes. maybe answer them uh, in tandem. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jacqueline with the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Thank you both for thank uh, you. joining us tonight. Um, given that it's an election year, uh, I'm curious about how well you think initiatives such as the Atrocities Prevention Board or even some of the CBE things you've talked about tonight and even commitments that have been made this week have been institutionalized and are sort of prepared to, to stay once Obama leaves office and someone else steps in. Okay. 
Excellent. Thanks. So those are great questions. Um, So let me start by just saying that the simple answer is that I feel very humbled and proud to represent the United States in the work that I do. And, you know, I am the first person to admit, as the president has said many times, the United States is not perfect, but um, we are a force for good on this planet and we do a lot of good. And uh, to be able to expand that space where we are doing good um, is an incredible privilege. The, um, the, the sort of joke or the adage within the foreign policy community is that you do all your thinking when you're out of government and then you come into government and you, you deplete your brain and then you have to go back out and reconstitute it. I think, um, I think there's a lot of, I think for me, you know, I have, uh, we talked about, about my career, you know, my last 10 years have been spent on preventing mass atrocities and civilian protection in a much more tangible way in terms of working with militaries on counterinsurgency policy and on, on targeting and, and uh, issues related to the, uh, the, the tactical execution of the use of force. So, so in my job now, I, don't, I, I, I work on, some, on, on many of those issues now, and I draw on that knowledge desperately. But I think, so, so, but what I think I can say about the, the external community more, more broadly is that in addition to preparing people intellectually to, to serve, there is a huge value in non-governmental organizations painting pictures around which diverse perspectives can mobilize. So once we are in government, we the ability to conceptualize, and I'm a little bit, I have more scope in my job for reasons of that are complicated to conceptualize than most do. But the ability to conceptualize a problem that then enables many different actors to come in and be part of moving it forward is really limited. And that is something that external organizations can do that governments have a very difficult time doing. And I think that's a real unique value added. I also think, and here I want to make a plug for the role of NGOs that we desperately need more focus on the CVE piece because I'm always getting questions about, you know, sort of what works and prove it to me. And my first response is compared to what bombing, right? Like, so you, you know, what's the standard of what works? What's the standard of success? You know, don't, don't hold these programmatic ideas to a standard that's different from programmatic ideas that we apply to, you know, development assistance per se. But more importantly, I think it's such a new field and it's such a new problem that we really do need academic institutions and nonprofits out there helping us better understand it. And the thing that is both really challenging but also intellectually very interesting about the spread of violent extremism is that it operates on two levels. It operates, one, on the individual level where there are a whole set of factors that we have a pretty good handle on, actually, by virtue of a lot of our more hard security measures. But then there are sort of community-level mobilization issues that we don't understand well. And they are classics for IR scholars because they are the interface between politics, economics, demographics, environment. It's, it's the, the whole sort of interdisciplinary understanding what makes a community or a piece of a community or a particular demographic within a community vulnerable to a particular kind of propaganda. And we spend all our time looking at the propaganda and saying we have to have a different message because that's easier than looking at these variegated s- circumstances that are different in every community. But to really help states and communities address it at the local level, this is a micro problem. We're going to need to get much more granular in how we understand it. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, so, and, and then um, responsibility to protect. protect and the institutionalization, institutionalization of some Obama so, priorities. So I can tell you that, um, that, that the team in the executive now is very well aware that many of the innovations that have characterized the Obama administration, and they're not unique to foreign policy, but that, that like, as in any presidential transition, um, they are always at risk of being reevaluated and found wanting. And, um, and so the, the hope that I have is that the issues that, that we have worked to advance We'll be, we will be able to assist whichever transition team comes in with our best, most honest assessment of their incremental value and ways in which they might be strengthened. And it will be up to whoever comes in to make those determinations. But I'll be honest, you know, institutionalization is something that we aspire, but anything can be deinstitutionalized. I mean, remember when uh, one administration created the unsigning of a treaty document? So it's amazing what, 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 what can be revisited? Um, so institutionalization requires not just what happens within the executive branch. It requires support from Capitol Hill on a bipartisan basis in the right committees that matter. It requires a public awareness and acceptance that, frankly, for a lot of things that are central to the State Department, like foreign assistance, has always been at risk, is always, is still fragile. Um, so it's, it's exactly the right question, but there's not a simple answer the answer is we, we try to make the policies that we work on as effective and compelling as we can, knowing that any administration will want to reevaluate through the lens that they believe is their mandate whether or not they want to continue them. Um, and so the, the teams that are in place are looking ahead, but they're looking ahead with an eye not to, like, you know, sneaking stuff in, but in, and, and I don't mean to infer that that was the question, but to presenting the, the, the best case for why we think the investments or the innovations or the things that we have created best serve American national security interests. Uh, well, Sarah, Undersecretary of State Sarah Sewell, thank you so much for your time. This was interesting. This was fun. This was inspirational. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me All right. Thank you all for listening. That was a lot of fun. And I'd love to do that again. If you want me to come to your town and if you want to organize a, a live taping, it can be done. This was this was great. Um, as always, please do make that contribution. I think we have maybe one more episode left in which I'll be uh, groveling before your feet, uh, asking for your contribution to keep this podcast going. There's some equipment I, I want to get. And I just uh, can't justify the outlay unless uh, I see some commitments from uh, from you out there. So thank you again for making that commitment to the podcast. I so, so, so appreciate it. And thank you again to uh, the State Department and to YPFP for making this happen. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.